0: Hi, you guys. Welcome to the Untamed and Unashamed podcast. This is a place where together we can navigate through life's ups and downs with all of the vulnerability, compassion, and openness that we can muster. Along with the help of guests from all walks of life, we'll discover new truths while doing some unlearning, and we'll gain valuable tools for becoming who we already are, while also uncovering our divine gifts. I'm Jade Bryce, and I'm so grateful that you're here. So... A few weeks ago, I saw the business of birth control and was shocked and saddened by how corrupt the birth control industry is. I know this topic can seem heavy and like another corrupt area to think about, which can feel like we're about to be pushed over the edge, but it is so important that we know this information for us and for our loved ones. And although the stats can seem saddening, today's guest is going to bring a lot of hope to the conversation. So bear with me. All right. So when they originally tested birth control, they did it in Puerto Rico and five of the 100 women died, one by suicide. And they passed it anyways, because they said that the deaths could not be linked to the birth control. Even though there has since been tons of women that have died from blood clots, heart issues, and suicide due to depression and panic attacks caused by birth control. Also, it was originally created by a racist woman who wanted to wipe out the Black and Indigenous race. She said it was for women's empowerment, but it was sadly much of the opposite. 60% of women in U.S. and European countries are taking the pill, 12.6 million is spent on research and development of oral contraceptives and birth control devices, yet it's estimated that 2.6 billion is spent on advertising these pharmaceuticals every year. So 163 million women in US, 65 million are on some form of birth control, whether it's the oral, the IUD, the patch, or you know whatever form. Estimated contraception market by 2025 will be $7.7 billion, which means that only 0.16, 0.16%, 0.16% of their market revenue is spent on research and development, and 34% is spent on advertising. And this is pretty standard in most areas of the medical industry, not just with birth control. One of the panelists from that screening is here with us today, and we'll talk all things women's health from birth to reharmonizing after birth control to infertility and more. He is a holistic OBGYN that has become a good friend, and I so love his heart and his ability to be in the gray. Through his holistic OBGYN practice, Beloved holistics, he offers a path of collaboration between himself, midwives, and health coaches. His generous heart thrives as a holistic OBGYN who brings to the table not only allopathic medicine, but also functional medicine, Chinese medicine, herbalism, and Ayurveda. He meets with patients locally and remotely to care for common OBGYN issues like pelvic pain, fertility issues, and abnormal periods. He feels that what matters is that mothers feel in charge of their bodies during their birth experiences. He argues that birth is so much more than the standard metrics of vital signs, length of labor, fetal status, or any variable routinely measured in labor in the medical model of care. Now, instead of serving the medical industrial complex, he serves women and their partners in achieving vitality. He has done extensive study in holistic lifestyle medicine and his practice is based on the midwifery model. He borrows from Eastern traditions like Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine and also provides holistic support to healing and pregnancy long before he recommends surgery, hormonal contraception, or other pharmaceuticals. He feels his role is to support your your sovereignty and your choice without coercion or judgment. He also has a fascinating spiritual approach to death, which we'll dive into. Please help me welcome Dr. Nathan Riley to Untamed and Unashamed.
1: Hi, Jade. Thank you for accommodating my crazy morning here. As as I mentioned, I just put down our little baby, and uh, then we had to do some very last-minute adjustments to the room. So thank you for your patience. It's really a pleasure to be here with you.
0: I'm so glad to have you here. Um, I know... uh, I got to ride with you to the screening of uh, the business of birth control and got to know you a little bit then. And then, uh, you know, we had some time at Crossey Springs and talked about Tantra and then we've talked about some controversial subjects since then. And I've just (laughs) really loved your heart in all of the conversations. Um, uh, your ability to be able to stand in the gray has been really refreshing. So super glad to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, um, I loved that about you as well because I know you've you've uh, from listening to your podcast and just knowing a little bit about your story and meeting your kids and um, I know that you've had a you've had a roller coaster as as we all have. everybody's life is a roller coaster. But yeah. I, I have appreciated just how how you show up with a um, a smile and and a, there's a sense of, of levity to you. Hmm. And that's why I was like, I need to get to know her a little bit better. She seems um, she seems like somebody I should be friends with. So yeah. I'm glad that we got to know each other.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you had that nudge because I'm so thankful that we're friends. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs>
0: so I'd love for you to share your story of what it was that caused this shift for you and your outlook of women's health.
1: Yeah, you know, like many people, they end up in. The, you're 18. You pick something to go to college for, and you're rewarded for for you know getting the right answers on the test and, and, you know, you're incentivized for using your big old brain and memorizing things, regurgitating it. And I I think when you get into medicine, then you have to figure out what do I want to do all this time. And um, I I chose OBGYN because there was a mystique about birth where I was like, I'm never going to understand this. Like, this is not a, a matter of comprehension. This is a matter of really kind of just standing back and perhaps watching this process develop over the next 30 years of my career but then when I got into residency, which is when we after med school you specialize doing residency, I did that out in LA. I, I really was, I don't know, maybe disillusioned is the word, but it was like, gosh, I, I'm just again memorizing things and then regurgitating them on the test, whether it's through how to prescribe medications or do surgery. And and I don't think that that actually is unique. Uh, I, I think my transition is unique, but I don't think that the f- the sentiment of why I decided to leave that is all that unique. So I think a lot of doctors if they weren't so caught up in their heads and they can actually just be guided by their heart, by their soul yeah. as to how they want to show up for women or or if they're not even a female, you know, a women-centered physician like I am, for any of their patients, like if you're showing up in the noggin, you mm-hmm. miss out on this, inc- this incredible opportunity to connect with them on a deeper level. So I wasn't really, I didn't find that I was able to do that in medicine and, and uh, especially as it pertained to birth. And my other specialty happens to be end of life. And while I see this, you know, while you might think it's the beginning of the end, I see them as two sides to the same coin. And in both situations, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you can't outsmart smart nature. And I see those as two very natural processes. So in order to do what I wanted to do, um, as well as just spend more time with people, I stepped yeah. out and, and now I do my own totally, totally own thing. Very, very niche thing that I
2: do. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, it reminds me, um, my best friend wrote and directed Patch Adams. It kind of reminds me of that where he, you know, he's kind of like, I mean, I haven't actually seen, I haven't seen it in so long, but from what yeah. I remember, um, yeah, he's in like the the spin cycle of being a doctor and then he starts to actually feel his patient's pain and and it changes how he does his yeah. practice.
1: Yeah, I had, a, um, I had a, an oncologist once tell me when I was in residency, and the way residency goes is it's like 100-hour work, week, so it's brutal. I ended up in severe adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. and um, I can talk about that separately because that was also a part of what got me out of it. Like, nobody can fix this. Nobody even recognizes that this is real. It's all in my head or something, but um, I digress. Uh, there was an oncologist who compared me to Patch Adams, and they meant mm-hmm. it actually as an insult. Oh, um, and you know, the G1 oncologists are not very nice people in general, and I don't blame them. imagine every person who's coming to them for care is going to die. You, you don't you don't really ever recover from full blown stage four serous carcinoma of the ovary. I mean, it, it's mm. maybe we push it down the road a little bit. But uh, when you're in a G1 oncology practice as a G1 oncologist, you're only seeing people who are the, the rare, they have that rare condition that you know you can't fix. So they become kind of calloused over. And they're all in the head. There's no heart there because as soon as you open your heart to somebody, knowing that they're going to die, you're just, you're just bound to, to be heartbroken again. Yeah. So I don't blame them for that. On the other hand, could we provide a more compassionate, comprehensive oncology care for somebody who really, really needs human connection right now? Like they're yeah. facing mortality way before they thought they would have to. Yeah. Um, whether they're 40 or 70, it doesn't matter. So sitting down and spending way more time with them is what I would do. At the cost of a bunch of other people waiting, so they were like, "You know, you don't get it. Like, you're you're like Patch Adams. You don't bring. You're not bringing your your medical school knowledge into the room. You're going and being friends with them."
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I was like, "Well, if that's my medicine, that's my medicine. Yeah, I get the medicine. I get the the drugs and the surgery, but but I want to connect with this person and be a man showing up for this woman and holding space for like how hard this must be, and that's seen as a you know sort of that that is seen as counterproductive to this medical train that we'll get on to, so um, yeah,
0: yeah but, i can I can imagine someone facing facing death and their um, care providers just being cold and kind of shut off uh, and right. it reminds me there's there's a book I can't think of the name, but it's um about. My my friend uh, Folco wrote it, but I can't think of the name of the book, but he served um, for a while at Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying. Um, I'll have to think of the book name and, and put it in the show notes. But uh, so I want to jump back into um, that sacred process of death in a little bit. But first, I'd love to discuss the energetics of birth with you, uh, from the birthing practices to medical convenience to the coercion and Corporate medicine, all, all of the, all of the birth stuff with you.
1: Yeah. Well, where do you want to start with that? Because that's a big one, right now. Yeah. Um, um, maybe just what does a what does birth what could birth look like? I think yeah, that's and it, it um,
0: yeah, what could birth look like, and and what is it looking like instead, basically? Because um, yeah. after that, I'd like to talk about the risks of C sections, since yeah, that's sure. so common now.
1: That's a great. And we actually talked a little bit about this, I remember, in the car ride as we were yeah. home from the, the, the business of birth control screening in Austin. Um, mm-hmm. So what birth could look like? And I actually encourage you, Jade, everybody out there listening, close your eyes and really just imagine, especially if you're a woman who's going to give birth someday, or maybe you gave birth and you want to reimagine that process. This is actually some of the work I do with my clients. Imagine what that ideal birth would look like. Most people... In this process of having your eyes closed are not imagining themselves as a baby themselves as a birthing woman or perhaps if you're the partner of somebody who's going to be giving birth not many people imagine bright lights distractions sharp things a lot of pain a lot of people yelling at you a lot of interruptions to this unfolding Mm
2: -hmm.
1: most people don't go there instead and and i i can you know we can venture into where your mind is going your heart is going But what if instead of the the experience that many women have in the hospital, what if instead a baby came into the world and there was amber lights, there was largely quiet or maybe whispers, perhaps there was even singing, perhaps this baby emerges in a pool of warm water. And most of all, what if that baby comes out and gets to see and feel their mother's heartbeat on her chest, her warm breasts, the, the skin of her warm breasts gets wrapped up in her arms, and perhaps the baby's dad's there too and is wrapping this little baby girl up. I'm I'm putting myself with my little daughter at our home. What if that, what if that's actually what happened? The reality of, and we can kind of stop the the exercise now, because everybody's gonna have a slightly different iteration of what their dream birth looks like. So there's no right answer to that. But many people don't imagine what happens in the conventional medical model. And from the hospital lens, it is seen as ignorant lazy, or even stupid to have a birth outside of the hospital because the hospital advertises safety. Mm -hmm. And that safety is correct. You're right. There is a good reason to have the ability to do a very, very quick you know, C-section, which is the only real delivery of a baby apart from maybe a couple other procedures. It's the woman giving birth. This is a sacred transformation. And if we can reframe it not as a condition that requires safety, but as a normal condition of the human experience, Mm-hmm. And most people don't want that human experience, whether they're birthing or dying for that matter, to be with all of the the needles and the drugs and the lights and the interruptions. They want to be looking within. There's that privilege of looking in and doing some very, very hard work at that time. And the, the many, many things that are a part of that purported safety package in the hospital generally get in the way of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it comes with more interventions because we want to keep people on track based on some generalizable understanding of how births should go. So we start trying to speed labor up. We try to force the water bag to open. We try to get the baby in a different position. We want the mom to be on her back because that lets us put our hand way up inside there to feel things. Mm-hmm. When the reality is that women don't aren't, aren't asking for that anymore. They're saying, wait a second, if women can have a, a baby out by themselves in the woods, and generally speaking, 90% of the time, that's probably going to be just fine without any need for intervention, then why are, we, why are we treating that as the default in the hospital? So many women are saying, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm going to try to have a home birth. And if something comes up, you've got an, a highly trained midwife or somebody else perhaps that might encourage you to go to the hospital if needed. Yeah, And that's where I see the, the OBGYNs are really important. Don't get me wrong. But they should, only be in, they should only be relevant when they're absolutely necessary. But we're, we've flipped that on its head. And the conventional medical model makes you believe you need to have all these interventions mm-hmm. in the name of safety. And I think safety in some ways kind of corrupts that relationship we have to birth.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to talk about both sides of this. Why um, is this because at the hospital they make more money the faster the birth happens? Or... Uh, they're just, um, you know, it's out of convenience of time, like why, why it's evolved to this in the hospital. And then also for women, because um, I know for me, I, my kids are six and seven. So I wasn't aware of all this. Like I didn't okay. even know someone who had done a home birth when I was pregnant with my kids, now all my friends have pretty much. But I, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know it was a possibility. And looking back, I don't know that I would have had the funds for it, anyhow. Um, but when I think about, like, you know, and I'm, I'm 38 this year. But when I think about wanting a redo, wanting to experience um, exactly what you described—the amber lighting, the warm skin, the the um, delay of the umbilical cord clamping. Um, exactly the the partner there and uh the love between us in this like intimate moment you know that's that's allowed um when i imagine all of that it feels beautiful but then i have these feelings of what if something could go wrong um could i handle the the pain because i've only had c-sections could i handle the pain um and it's not so much a money thing at this point, because I've worked so much on my mindset around money, but I know six or seven years ago, that's probably would have been my number one hesitance was like coming up with the funds for it. So yeah. I'd love to discuss why it's evolved to this in the hospital, whether it's a, a money, like the more money they make, or it's a convenience thing. And then um, why you think women have also probably with women like me, it's it's a lack of um, knowledge around it that it's that it's even possible.
1: Yeah, well, as recently as um, I really appreciate that, Jade. And I know that um, when women hear me speak about this, sometimes it can be very confronting because then they start asking, why did yeah, I yeah. have to have this birth versus the home birth that so many people are raving about now?
0: You feel tricked even. Yeah, like You yeah, feel like you were betrayed.
1: Right, like it was like, I, how could I be so stupid? How could I have not trusted my body? Those types of feelings come up. And I, mm-hmm. I, so I want to take a moment to just honor everybody out there who's had a baby your journey is no worse or better than anybody else what's important to me is that you have a baby
2: mm-hmm. and
1: i've met a lot of great moms who are beating themselves up but they're they're the best mom that i've ever seen oh. to this little boy or little girl yeah so if that's your story and i know that that is there's a a hint of that in in your sort mm-hmm. of reflection just on what you just said but there's a lot of moms out there that feel either betrayed or they feel like they feel shame or they feel guilt about how things happened. And that's not relevant here
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you do the best that you can do with what you know and the resources yeah. you have in at that moment. So that's first and foremost, what I want people to realize. There is no shaming somebody for not having a free birth, not having a home birth, not having a vaginal birth in the hospital or a C-section. It's just mm-hmm. not a part of the conversation for me. Mm-hmm. What I do think is relevant for this part of the conversation is if you're in the process of, thinking i might have kids there's a lot of resources out there and a lot of the resources start with here's all the bad things that can happen so the first when i when we had our first baby stephanie my wife was about halfway through our first pregnancy and we've got two kids under three so we've got a two and a half year old and a a eight month old or something (laughs)
2: Um,
1: so we're we're quite busy here (laughs) two covid babies and uh and when i when people found out that we were pregnant they were like oh can we send you my our books cuz i had a an old podcast that you know i stopped because i wanted to shift into the into a different type of conversation but i'd made so many contacts through that old podcast that i got like 10 different books on pregnancy including mm. all the common titles you know um what to expect when you're expecting this and that and and many of the books start with like in the first the introduction there's a horrible bunch of things that can happen and my wife was like nope next book nope Mm. and and that isn't because she is unwilling to read the books or Mm -hmm. to understand that there's risks it was for her the embodiment of pregnancy and childbirth could not come from a place of fear yeah so what do we do when sometimes
0: even just reading about them and like inviting like um it's one thing to be aware but like reading those things even when you get a diagnosis, reading the symptoms, whatever it is, reading these things kind of brings them into your field, right. and then you can easily manifest them from there.
2: Right. So it's this it's exactly. like
0: tightrope to walk of like having the awareness, but like not inviting it in. It's, it's, it can be confusing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and whether you think a decision was right or wrong, you're correct.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it's it, it really does start to manifest. So when we enter the childbirth process out of a state of fear, we tend to manifest bad things. And that again, that's not victim shaming. Mm -hmm. That's also, that puts the onus on the system. Like, hey, all of this childbirth education, the way you treat women when they come to you with their preferences or their birth plans, the way that they show up and tell you, here's what I want and don't want in the birth room. If you are stressing them out in childbirth, they're probably going to be afraid. And then by necessity, they're going to need you to save them from the thing that has manifested. Not because it was their fault, but because they've probably been in a state of fear the entire time through pregnancy, or not. And and it's conjecture, it's mere conjecture. Mm -hmm. So what what I think we can say is that without putting a person in a position to question how they showed up for their birth, how they gave birth to their little girl or little boy, let's, let's wipe the slate clean there. If you're anticipating getting pregnant and wanting to have a birth of your dreams, whatever that means, you have to realize, number one, there's a lot that's not in your control. Mm-hmm. but number two there is a lot that is in your control and that starts with how you're what you're putting into your body how much you sleeping at night it's all the basics of lifestyle medicine which is actually a the vast majority of what i'm doing nowadays because if 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 we can go in the into this journey together and you know that your body is inherently wise and capable of doing this then we've already neglected that thing that the system kind of wants you to think about yourself that you're Mm -hmm. ill, you've got a disease process and you need a medical procedure to get you out of that that pathology. Which is why in the hospital, they put you in a wheelchair and they wheel you up. They treat you like a patient. They call you patients. I don't call pregnant women patients because they're not sick. Mm
2: -hmm. They're
1: fucking warriors. And they're about to go through this incredible transformation of spirit. And so is their partner. If their partner can stand, stand up without passing out, <laughs> either way, they're going through this as well. So, so it starts with very, very positive language, not treating pregnancy like an illness, not treating the birth of a child as a delivery or a medical procedure, but holding space for this process to unfold. And if something comes up where we are really concerned about the health of you and your baby, we can provide you with the option, hey, do you want us to intervene here? Mm-hmm. if you're like, to hell with anything happening, I want this baby and I want to walk out of here alive, then mm-hmm. we've got tools for that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I, I rambled there a little bit, but uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that.
0: Yeah. Um, so, um, so I feel like it, it, as far as it comes from the medical industry pushing it, is it mostly out of convenience and money? pushing yeah. pushing the like fast births.
1: I think that you know if we if we even think as recently as like the late nineteenth century, childbirth was being was being honored and and attended to by women. And then there was mm-hmm. this big financial incentive, which was pushed by the Rockefellers, Carnegie the Carnegies and whatnot to push out all alternative health practitioners through the flex yeah, and world.
0: also to just suppress women's power yeah, of, exactly. of them not being the medicine women.
1: Right. There's this cult of domesticity that developed in England at the time where actually it was in the United States at the time. And the United States didn't take to the witch trials the way that England and the rest of Europe did. We did have the witch trials here, but it wasn't anything in comparison to the Inquisition and the burning and torturing of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women in in Europe. But what emerged from that is it was like, oh, we aren't really great with that because women can be the domesticators they can live in the home etc and out of that actually developed what was called the popular health movement which is widespread but especially popular here in the states when women started experimenting with do-it-yourself medical care you know they started revisiting herbalism etc and what happened into the 20th century was that okay women are kind of taking care of themselves. Midwives are showing up and taking away a lot of business. Let's develop tools and tricks in a, in a language and a caricature of midwives and women in general, which is a continuation of thousands of years of repressing women's healing abilities and their connection mm-hmm. to nature, calling it everything from pagan to satanic, et cetera, which hence the witch trials. Yeah. But But there was a lot of money to be gained in the early 20th century by white men saying, oh, wow, well, if you're not super educated, and you don't have all these fancy tools, then you must not be that good at, at, at attending mm-hmm. to birth. And the, yeah. the, the stats said otherwise. The midwives were doing great, and the, the yeah. doctors were totally clumsily messing up childbirth left and right. But then, you know, with with the advent of sterilization and wanting to give the impression that hospitals were safer, so so be it. Mm-hmm. So then it started to become a, if you're wealthy enough, you can have a baby in the hospital. And it just mm-hmm. kind of set, came, you know. So then it was something broken.
0: to to like... It was like a privilege. Yeah, yeah,
1: like how, like how, how, how upper class of you, you had a baby in the hospital instead of in your bedroom. Like, oh, how,
0: yeah. how
1: perverse, you know, or how dirty. And yeah, and, so these, and
0: it, sorry, yeah. go ahead.
1: Well, no, I, I, I wanted to answer your question though because mm-hmm. nowadays it's not necessarily financially uh, incentivized to do, do more C sections or whatever else. Hmm. but we've got a labor and delivery unit in every major hospital in the country with maybe 20 beds there. In each of those patients, when we bill the insurance, as more, the more people we can get through that hospital, the more money the hospital makes. It's, it's probably the biggest wealth generating department in any hospital. People don't realize that. I mean, neurosurgery hmm. and everything, yeah, they're paid a lot, but we're, we can have 20 babies born in a maternity unit and the hospital can make who knows how much money. Yeah. So it's harder for women to be in the hospital for longer because it costs more money. But mm-hmm. the birth itself is very valuable. So mm-hmm. whether we do it by C-section or vaginal birth, I don't know if there's too much incentive there necessarily. But if it helps to speed up opening the rooms and not having to turn women away, that's more money for the hospital. So there definitely is a financial component. It's just not the whole picture.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about um like the history that you brought up. Uh, whether there were more um, delivery deaths then or now, but before that, um, before we close off the C-section, um, part of the conversation, I know that for me, why mine felt so traumatic is because I was in such survival mode. And I, I am guessing that most women who have an emergency C-section are in survival mode. And I think that for me, where my shame comes up is, um, and I, I don't know that I've ever like even spoken this out loud, because it's such a shame trigger for me. But my son, uh, I wanted his name to be something to do with being a light, mm. and I had soul on the soul. list because in Hebrew it means peace, and Spanish it means sun, and um, so I wanted to name him Soul. And that was on the list. And then I, and then I found out that his due date was the solstice. And I felt, I was like, Oh my God, well, he wants to be named soul. And I really want him to come on the solstice. Right. And so, um, and, and his dad did too. So I was doing all the things like eating all the pineapple, doing all the walks on inclines, all these things to try to make sure that he was going to come. And the doctor kept saying, no, I think he's going to be about a week late. And then, uh, My friend, and again, I didn't research this. I was 29, didn't was not in a um, health minded community at the time. But my friend was like, "Oh, just just have some castor oil. It'll cause, (laughs) yeah." And she's like, "Just have (laughs) castor oil. It'll happen." I did it myself. Everything was fine. So I had castor oil, and sure enough, two hours later, I started having contractions, and um, you know, it was the due date. So you would think that um, the father would be ready, but he was drunk. And so at 2 a.m., I had to drive myself with contractions to the airport. I mean, to the uh, not to the airport, to the hospital, carry my bags myself. I was lost. I couldn't find the delivery place. Um, It was just so freaking stressful on top of being so angry that his dad was drunk on the delivery date Mm -hmm. and um, on his due date. And so there was I was just such a stressful evening yeah. and right. there's this part of me that's like why the fuck did you drink castor oil why would you force a baby to come before he's mm-hmm. ready so there's like this anger towards myself that i've been like working through but then also um like the you know the frustration with the the drunkenness and like i f- i just feel like i created such a stressful entrance to his life and so then mm-hmm. what happened was every time i'd have a contraction his heart rate would drop. So they said, we need to do an emergency C-section. And immediately I was like, I shouldn't have drank the castor oil. And then also we're stressed about the drunkenness. And like, there was all these feelings of, um, of fear and shame that put me in survival mode. And then I go into surgery. And even before that, when I showed the doctor, the birth plan that I wanted, like I wanted, here comes the sun from the Beatles to be playing, which was the only thing they stuck to, but the whole birth list was like 25 things. She was like, we don't, really do birth plans here so she like out the gate was like none of this yeah. is gonna happen and it was like delaying the clamp that he gets skin to skin immediately all these things um the only thing that happened was they played here comes the sun but, <laughs> so there there was all of that that already was there but then after once i became more aware finding out all the things that all the risks that come with c-sections and like the antibiotics and like the lack of um uh uh, probiotics that he got from not right. going through the vaginal canal mm-hmm. all these things then it was just like my heart just was so sad and so mm-hmm. um yeah I wanted to share that because I'm sure that there are women who are thinking back to their c-section possibly and thinking what they could have done to prevent it and that comes up for me all the time um mm-hmm. but I still wanted to have the conversation because I want women who I want women to feel more informed. And then also, like with a C section scar, like there's this, like, every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, it's my kid's birthmark. Like, I, that was me bringing them into the world. But it's also a reminder of, like, God, the um, recovery process was so much fucking harder. And my yeah, ab, yeah. my ab muscles were so much weaker. Like, all yeah. these things that I wish, you know, I hadn't had a C section. But at the same time, like you said, I have my children here, you yeah, know, yeah. and so I'm still yeah. celebrating that. But, um, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to say about C sections, like why we want to avoid them, the risks that they can have.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jade. I I think one thing actually that we fail to that we that we need to bring back is the is the 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 ritual, the ceremony in life, Mm
2: -hmm. and I
1: think especially as it pertains to childbirth, and I would also argue death, but. In childbirth, we because we treat it like a medical procedure, we have this adage of like just healthy mom, healthy baby. That's all you want, right? And that kind of coerces people to do things that otherwise they maybe aren't feeling intuitively, mm-hmm. uh, or that their soul, the eye of their soul, is really seeing as a as a valuable option. Um, and there are a lot of reasons to have a C section. It sounds to me like you had one of the top three common causes, probably the most common cause, which is that the baby is stressed out. Something's going on here. Either the cord's compressed, the placenta's not working well enough. Something's going on there in that unit, and the only way that we can assure that this baby is going to be okay is to rapidly deliver the baby through a, an incision in, this, in, the, in the abdomen. And so that is a that is a really common cause um, of C-section. I would. I would I don't want to say this that you feel bad mm-hmm. but I always wonder when we want to speed up labor are we mm-hmm. forcing the unit to start to go into labor way before it's perhaps time
2: Yeah I think and, that's and, what it was
1: Yeah and 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 that's not for you to feel bad about Jade
2: Yeah
1: I, I do think that we easily are like Oh, well, you shouldn't have had the castor oil or we shouldn't have had this, the pineapple or the dates, or <laughs> too much red raspberry leaf tea or whatever mm-hmm. it was. There's all these different induction methods. Um, enemas actually work as well. Oh, wow. But if we if we do that and we end up with a good outcome, we can say, see, it worked. Mm-hmm. It's like a, you know, and if it works and if you do something and it's a bad outcome, we say, shame on you. So it's sort of like the fitness, the fitness expert who's training you in the gym. And if mm-hmm. you lose weight, they want to take credit for that. If you gain weight, it's your fault. Yeah. So, So no matter what, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, for anybody listening out there. So I just, I want to honor your story. And I want to tell you that soul, meaning soul, you've got a perfect kiddo. Mm -hmm. And you are, you are an amazing mom. And this little birthmark on your abdomen is a reminder of how hard that journey was. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of your story. And it forever should be a part of your story. We can't Mm -hmm. look back and say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It doesn't serve us to do that. Yeah, Um, we, we just beat ourselves up. So let's talk of the, the basics of the c-section right we make a, an incision in the skin we cut through a layer of fascia we separate the muscles we generally don't cut through muscles there's this big old honking uh, kickball size uterus in there with a baby we make an incision in the uterus remove the baby it's now becoming fashionable to delay cord clamping even during a c-section up to like a minute um obviously with a vaginal birth you could let it go for as long as you want yeah probably. they
0: only gave me a minute
1: yeah, and I had to argue for that when I was a resident, like my PD, pedi- one of my best friends from residency, if not probably my best friend from residency, he's a pediatrician. And he was constantly a battle with me. And then when he had kids, he was like, dude, you've been right all this time about all these things. So,
0: the so benefits, it was, like, it, I mean, the benefits, it's like, why not? It's so weird. Yeah, to right. yeah.
1: well, let, well, let's say let's the alternative would be a baby comes out, we're letting the cord continue pulsing for a while, maybe the chest and still attached to the placenta inside, but you yeah. are hemorrhaging and you're losing color and your heart rate's going up. That would be an obvious reason for us to not do that. So as surgeons, we tend to not see the whole person because Mm -hmm. if you see the whole person, I can't cut into you. I don't want to cut into Jade. I want Mm -hmm. to cut into this little window of skin. Mm -hmm. And that makes it possible for me to take a knife to another person, which would otherwise be killing them, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so put your, if we put our minds into the, ourselves into the minds of the surgeons, we want to get the surgery done as quickly as possible. And, mm-hmm. you know, generally 30 minutes is enough for a, for a C-section. Um, we mm-hmm. draw it out because we want to get every little bleeding vessel. But that time that we delay, it also complicates maternal neonatal bonding.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: you want to be with that baby on your chest, but instead the baby's over there. And you're hardly no. even able to hear the baby crying. So that is actually traumatic in and of itself. <sighs> So yeah. when we look at the metrics, we look at blood loss, we look at infection rates, we look at, um, is the mom and baby alive? And that's really it. You know, does the baby mm-hmm. need to go to the NICU or is the baby doing okay? And that's not enough. That's not enough for me. So when the data says C-section is safe, it's safe for who? In, mm-hmm. in, in what regard is it safe? Because yes, having a mom and baby who can walk out alive is a good metric. But is that mm-hmm. if that's our only metric, we start doing C-sections for everything, for breech babies. Yeah. Or... I mean, it, it, you could do it for any reason under the sun nowadays. You could, just, you could justify it by saying C-sections are really, really safe. But we can yeah. consider that metric of like, what is it like to have your baby on your chest versus across the room for an extra hour during that golden hour with all the bright lights and the
0: shadows. Yeah. Like, can you imagine going from a warm, dark womb where you're oh, just, gosh. your only sound is your mother's heartbeat and yeah. her voice out to this bright ass room that's cold and there's all people like, Oh my God, I can't even imagine what that does to the nervous system. And I'm curious because I so wish that that wasn't my son's entrance to life or my daughter's, but what makes it even worse for my son for me is that I also wasn't aware around circumcision. And so his second day of life, they cut his most sensitive part of his skin. And I, I really feel that before his circumcision, Like, and I know it was only with him for 24 hours, but he had this like really peaceful spirit and like, like just this calmness. And then I remember they took him for a C-section, they cut it and they messed it up. They, Mm -hmm. they cut it wrong. So they had to like redo it
2: Mm.
0: and they said he'd be right back. They were gone for like two hours. When they finally brought him back, he was still like shaking and shivering from crying so hard. And then. I just remember after that, like the next couple of days, there was this like, like he had like, like a serious face where he was like furring his brow and just like, like he had this like confusing feeling, like he had this confusing spirit Mm -hmm. instead of that peaceful spirit. And I cannot imagine, and I'm so sad that on his second day of life, that was his entrance to life was like, not only that cold, bright ass room with all these loud strangers, and then someone cutting his most sensitive piece of his body And then having to do it again. And he doesn't, he's not even in the same room as his mom. And like that, just that pain and that stress, you know, and, um, I know that a lot of people have been circumcised and they say they're fine, but yeah, I don't, I, I also am curious if you think like, is it the OBGYN that does the circumcision?
1: Generally nowadays. Yeah. Pediatricians used to do it. When I was in training, we did about, I did several hundred and it, as I got practiced with it, because you're, you're a surgeon, your OBGYNs are 70%
2: surgeon,
1: 30% everything else. Mm -hmm. And so when you give a person a scalpel, everything looks like something to be cut on. And, and uh, so, yeah, the the circumcision, if we had a boy, we wouldn't have had, uh, you know, done circumcision. I was Mm -hmm. circumcised. So I always thought like, well, you would want your little boy to match you. But mm-hmm. it's really genital mutilation. So, silly reason. It's so silly. I mean, it's uh, Jade. You, I feel like a total dingbat when I think back to why I was like, oh, maybe, maybe it's okay. And but, but I was also doing it and learning how to do it. And then after so much, if you're really paying attention, it's like, man, we're strapping this baby down. We're putting sugar on its tongue, and then we're cutting a a piece of the penis off, which is.
0: all three of those things sound fucking absurd yeah (laughs) putting sugar on the tongue of a two-day old yeah strapping them down which if you know peter levine's work is trauma in itself yeah right and then cutting like it's the the strapping down while cutting is actually way like it's also to me i feel like they're like that has to cause ptsd in men
1: uh, they're
0: either disconnected from their penis or there, I don't know, there has to be something
1: there. Like Yeah. I mean, think about the first and second chakra issues we've got rampant yeah. in our country. I mean, perhaps this happens at birth, but even when, like going back to the C-section conversation, we're strapping most women down still, crucifixion style on an operating room table with a blue sheet centimeters yeah. from their head and they get anxious. So we give them medicines to calm them down. Now they're totally out yeah. of whack
2: yeah. when the baby
1: comes. Not not everybody, but I'm talking about often experiences. And even when it's a totally healthy c-section with no complications it was routine textbook whatever the experience of being strapped down during a transformation of spirit is trauma like there is yes. a trauma experience there that we don't even we completely neglect it in the western model not to mention now that like even when women have vaginal births because it's a hard experience like a, a traumatic experience doesn't have to be like a horror horrific rape or a gang rape it could be that somebody who says i have you and i'm gonna hold i'm gonna keep you safe straps you down down and then causes some pain to you
2: mm-hmm. so
1: with like a routine vaginal exam in the hospital the doctors rush in and they say we have to check on the baby without ever introducing themselves and then they shove something into your vagina mm-hmm. while perhaps even your partner is helping to hold you down as you say no 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 it hurts it'll be over. So just, just a little pressure here, a little pressure. And I mean, it, so women who've come to work with me, they say it felt like I was being
2: raped. Yeah. And, some and of I them think a lot are,
0: of us are walking around, whether any part of this trauma that we brought up, a lot of women are walking around with that trauma still in their womb space. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the womb wound. Um, so when we, so if we take a step back mm-hmm. and we consider you know the long-term consequences of C-section, meaning you know you can have abnormal placentation, meaning you get placenta previa, where now you've resound to another C-section. You've got increased morbidity through surgery. You got increased blood loss from future C-sections or any other surgery. You've got issues with the placenta maybe growing through the wall of the uterus and requiring C-section at birth or a hysterectomy at birth. When we consider all of that, and then we take a step back and we look at how women are starting to see the system as like, oh, you guys are have been safer here Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and you've you've programmed us and conditions conditioned us to think that home birth is unsafe Mm -hmm. but everybody's who's having a home birth is having a really great experience and they're not coming out with that trauma where people are shoving their hands in places they don't belong or starting medicines and ivs without consenting them or completely laughing off their birth plan they're respecting them at home Mm -hmm. because you're in their territory you, you know I, as a physician, I'm an, on your turf, so I don't walk into someone's home. I wouldn't walk in your house and and uh, put my dirty feet up on your couch like I'm a little bit more respectful that that yeah. alone, let alone you know f- you know attending a birth. So women are starting to choose to do the home birth thing because all of these things are happening in hospitals and mm-hmm. it's the the hospital staff doesn't even realize how traumatizing the experience is. and yeah. granted, you can have a, a decent hospital birth but we're not listening to women when they're when they're saying something's off here with the way yeah. that people are attending birth in hospital.
0: Do you feel like part of it is um, like the desire for epidurals because we are so afraid of pain as well? Um, yeah. I don't know your thoughts on epidurals. Um, both of mine were C-sections, so I I, I had the... With
1: the spinal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, an epidural is uh, sometimes, some you know, to each their own. Uh, my wife didn't, she had two unmedicated births, and I think it helped her really feel into the experience. Mm-hmm. And epidural works by putting lidocaine and fentanyl. Uh, it's not lidocaine, it's uh, bupivacaine, I believe, and fentanyl. But basically, mm-hmm. it blocks all motor and sensory function below mm-hmm. roughly the the xiphoid process right here in the center of your, of your, uh, of your chest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you can't move your legs, you can't feel your bladder, you can't feel your your, your colon, your anus. You might get the sensation to poop, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And so the whole time, the baby's working its way through without the mom getting into different positions. So as long as a person understands that this can potentially protract it or make labor longer, perhaps stall out altogether because we're not doing the, the sort of juicy... Hip movements on the Swiss ball, or we're not standing in the shower, we're not squatting onto all fours, we're not doing all that movement that actually facilitates that's a communication mm. with the baby, and that dance is what helps the baby get through this the cardinal movements and get through the tight pelvis. Yeah, um, so as long as a person understands those risks, I, of course, to each their own, mm-hmm. but I don't think we really counsel on that. We just say, Oh, there's low risk of infection, low risk of bleeding, and you're not going to get paralyzed. What well, you don't have to have pain in childbirth, and it was actually a feminist uh, notion. That an epidural was was a way for a woman to take charge of her own health. I can control this pain. I want that thing, doctor. Give it to me. I'm loud. I'm here, and I'm gonna get what I want, mm-hmm. which I can understand. During the time when epidurals became popular, probably yeah. in the 40s and 50s, that was a pretty big thing to be able to, yeah. to not have to to birth through the pain of childbirth. Yeah. On the other hand, I think women are now reembracing that there's actually a connection to the experience when you,
0: can yeah. <laughs> It's no secret that shame-free sex and pleasure are powerful avenues to deeper connections and an overall sense of well-being. And accessible, expertly designed toys can play a big part in getting you there and making you feel more alive. Dame is leading a sexual wellness revolution as a women-powered resource for game-changing pleasure products and supportive content. Started by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, Dame develops her products based on research and feedback from people like you. They're making better sexual experiences and more pleasure available to all. Dame's easy-to-use toys and accessories are made with body-safe, doctor-approved materials and smart design principles. And they've earned glowing praise from the New York Times, the Today Show, and many more including me. Whether you're looking to shake things up with your partner or upgrade your self-care routine, they've got something for every nightstand. Even better, Dame offers three-year warranties and hassle-free returns within 60 days, so your satisfaction is literally guaranteed. And I will guarantee you satisfaction because I use their products myself. They're amazing. My favorite one is their suction toy. I call it the clit sucker, but it's Uh, spelt A-E-R. It's called air. It's a powerful arousal tool for fans of oral stimulation. It creates thrilling pulses of air and a soft seal around your clitoris. So you can go all the way right away. Guys, I have like eight to 10 orgasms almost every time I use it. I use it during sex and in my own pleasure practice you will not be disappointed. They're also sending me a bunch of their other products, so I'll keep you updated. But as of right now, this one's my favorite and I highly recommend it. Go to dameproducts.com and use code Jade today for 15% off your order with Dame. Now on with the show. I think women are also kind of embracing that it's a gift to do the um, childbirth because I think there was a time there where there was almost this anger towards men that we had to do it. You know, that we had to do it all. And I think right now it's becoming more sacred. Um, There's a shift that's happening. I'm curious also though, with the home births that we brought up, how that was the norm before um, in the 20th century, were there more delivery deaths then, or are there more now? Because I know that right now, it seems that, like I know, um, I shared some statistics with you that in 2018 there were 658 deaths, 2019 754, 2020 it was 861. So it seems that there, I know that the US has the highest rate of labor and delivery deaths, but it seems that, that um, the number has been climbing a little bit recently. And I'm, I'm curious if it's still lower than it was with majority home births, or if it's lower. Well,
1: the the numbers have definitely over time decreased until Mm. very recently and Mm. that's i think so so when we talk about having let's go back let's go way back let's go back to like 1900 you're in 1900 that was really before we started sterilizing instruments people were going in from one patient to the next even in the maternity units and just going from you know
0: they they were going going from the that they were dealing with death and then going straight to birth without washing their hands yeah they didn't have antibacterial soap so that was right. actually a cause for a lot of the deaths.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and and so when we're when we're talking about mortality, a lot of people like to say we've gotten way better. We have better statistics than we did way back in the day.
2: But we just got the issue
1: is with that. We've
0: just gotten more sanitary.
1: Yeah, we've gotten more sanitary. Yeah. I mean, washing your hands before putting your hands inside the abdomen of a person or into a wound before you stitch it up, like it makes so much sense now. Yeah. But that's really the extent of it. As we have thrown more medicine, you know, surgery, drugs, et cetera, and protocols into the birth experience Mm -hmm. in the United States specifically, we are not seeing an improvement in outcomes, Mm -hmm. except for one patient population, which is people who have hypertensive disorders, if we expedite that deli- that that birth, we decrease the risk of like hemorrhage and stroke and seizures and all mm-hmm. those other things. Mm-hmm. But apart from that being a cause of mortality, we are doing piss poor compared to the rest of the developing world yeah. in both neonatal and maternal mortality, especially women of color.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm also curious, um, we, we talked about the womb wound um, and I didn't... I, I don't feel ready to, to transition out of the conversation just yeah, sure, yet. Sure. I want to ask, um, so I know for me in my sessions with, um, with clients, I do womb healings, um, and I've also had a friend that did, she went into a mushroom ceremony with the intention to heal um, her trauma from her C-section, and she experienced uh, on mushrooms, she like saw the crown, The head crowning, like she re-experienced her entire labor. Uh And it was really healing for her. Um, I'm curious what other ways you feel that um that can be reharmonized in our womb.
1: I I think it really depends on the on the person. I heard a story recently from a therapist who who um works in, she's a perinatal sort of mental health specialist. And that's Mm -hmm. that's something that's far and few between in our world. And a person came to her and had a really, really hard time processing the fact that she had a C-section. Not that even anything bad happened, Mm -hmm. but it was so, she was carrying the trauma of this baby coming out through the abdomen versus through the vagina. And in their their work, there was a a bit of a a meditative practice and there was a, a, for lack of better terms, a hypnotic kind of regressive, regression therapy component to this. And this person had an epiphany that during one of these sessions, she met the baby, met her baby inside the uterus mm. during the, the pregnancy. They went back, you know, time is not linear. We know that. Yeah. So they went there into the womb together and the baby was like, I'm your baby. Hello, yeah. mom. Indicated down to the cervix and said, I can't go there. I can't go down through there. That's mm. why I had to come out through the abdomen, like through your belly. Yeah. And she was like, well, what on earth do you mean? And she, of course, like explored this and found that there were like, it, it, she described it, it, this is, you know, a telephone game, but the way that I envisioned it from the description was that there was cobwebs and there was this like dank, scary sort of territory down by the cervix. The cervix is the opening of the uterus that mm-hmm. op- it gives way whenever the baby's coming out. So the baby was like, I'm not going there. I'm going out elsewhere mm-hmm. otherwise. And I'm going through the <laughs> through the incision. Mm-hmm. And the baby did. So what came of that conversation was this woman had a history of severe sexual abuse and trauma mm-hmm. I hadn't even really touched on that like it was so repressed that she and just,
0: i had that too so
1: yeah and and so so this story uh with you know the number of women who are who are sexually assaulted and abused in our country which is mm-hmm. a large number i can't remember the last but it's like one in five women reports I think it. it's
0: one in three now yeah one
1: in three yeah and that's people who are reporting it yeah so guys we have to stop raping abusing molesting women because you're completely screwing up our spiritual connection to the to the divine feminine and to the cosmos. Like, I'll yeah. just start with that. And it's manifesting in the birth process. Mm-hmm. So the collective trauma of holding down women, forcing them to do things in childbirth, sticking them with sharp things, on top of histories of sexual assault, abuse, rape, et cetera, is creating this perfect storm of even the baby, the spirit of the baby finds this lovely womb, found your womb, Jade.
2: Mm-hmm. and then is
1: looking down and for some reason that is a scary place to go through because mm-hmm. it is holding on to the energy of this past trauma. Yeah. And so that was actually very that was closure for this woman.
2: Mm-hmm. And she
1: she had to work through the fire of going back into these past traumas, but it actually gave her some meaning, some understanding or comprehension of perhaps what the spirit of this baby needed.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it actually it actually was very healing for her. Now that's some pretty intensive womb healing yeah but that's like i said i could tell you a couple other stories where we have to kind of take a step back and really consider the whole experience here yeah and the medical system does not talk about trauma the way that you and i talk about trauma it doesn't talk about the energetic bodies that govern over our human experience it Mm -hmm. is interested in the meat sack with organs inside yeah if we can get healthy mom healthy baby then you should have nothing to complain about
0: Mm mm-hmm Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, it feels really similar to the work that I do where we talk to our parts or we talk to our inner child and, um, that sounds like such a beautiful experience and such a beautiful invitation. So thank you for that answer. Uh, Um, okay. So shifting a little bit, I'd love to talk about, um, the myth of infertility, infertility as well.
1: Yeah, well, the vast majority of my practice is now becoming helping couples get pregnant. And Mm -hmm. uh, it starts with laying down the healthy soil, you know, let's work on diet movement, etc. And uh, I actually just did a a fertility course for the Czech Institute. We just filmed it last weekend. And, And yeah, and it's going to be open to everybody, including coaches, you know, women and their partners who are hoping to get pregnant or struggling with it. It, It's open to all comers. But in putting that course together, I was like, oh my God, there is so much information that we can incorporate into this because every single person's journey is specific, is is individualized. So we, but, but we start for 90% of people by getting diet and movement, hydration, breathing, mindset, sleep, getting those, maybe even EMF mitigation is becoming more and more interesting to me. Getting those factors, just getting 80% of that together Mm -hmm is going to solve the issue, not to mention male factor infertility, 40% of couples who are having issues. It's actually due to low sperm count, which we can talk about separately.
0: And I think that has a lot to do with all these men walking around with their cell phones in their front pocket.
1: I would agree. microwaving your testes your gonads all day long yeah Yeah. and and i mean of course we've got a a really shitty agricultural system we've got tons of processed food everybody's addicted to something whether it be alcohol cocaine methamphetamines yeah you name it um or it's you know self-inflicted harm through just our our sleep habits and everything else yeah so we uh once we get those things in order we can actually start working on some of the mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of fertility. And the reason I say that this, this, you know, I I took that term from a, a, I think she's a PhD out of USC, Cleopatra, something or other. The the myth of infertility was the name of an episode she did in in an interview. And I was like, that's exactly what this is. There is no fertility issue in our nation, apart from maybe one to 2% of people who are truly sterile,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: everybody can get pregnant it's just a matter of figuring out what is it what is going on Mm -hmm. and after we lay down that 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 sort of soil the healthy soil Mm -hmm. we can get into functional lab testing we actually need to start cycle mapping through fertility awareness we need to consider the conscious conception piece to fertility and then we also need to consider um are you and your partner like prepared for this that's a big part of the conversation and that does get into conscious conception. Yeah. But if you stop and ask yourself, what do I need for this baby to feel safe to come in here?
2: Yeah. It
1: gets into some of the trauma work. It gets into chakra balancing. It may even get into, um, like, let's talk is your about- your womb a safe place? Yeah. yeah. Is your is your womb, you know, the baby's waiting up there. The baby wants to come down. But
0: like- Yeah, I you, feel we all have, have soul agreements. Relations? That's right. That's if right. It, it doesn't mean that the agreements happen. Um, of course. But yeah, I mean, I, I know I have a, a a little female soul that shows up all the time. That's like, we still have that soul agreement. I'm like, reroute, reroute. not (laughs) We'll
1: get back Um, to you. Give me one more, one more trip around the sun and I'll get back to you. I just need to get some things worked out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I've been told, um, this was actually an audience question, but I've been told by an intuitive that I am, um, going to have another child at 42, Mm. which sounds like, because I'm so tired still from having two babies back to back and breastfeeding, but I wasn't in a very healthy relationship at the time. So I think that's Yours why very exactly.
1: close, very back to back 12
0: yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, which is why the second one had to be a C-section uh, supposedly, but um, what she said, the intuitive said, and it's Mary Margrave, who a, a lot of people in our circle see, she said that at that time, my work and my relationship and my life is going to feel so playful that I am only going to feel excitement about having a baby at that time. But still, I'm like 42. Um, (laughs) So I'm curious, because an audience actually asked this, how late is too late to try and conceive?
1: There are a couple considerations with this advanced maternal age thing. We call it geriatric pregnancy. We call it uh, elderly multigravid. In your case, if you're over 35, you're considered old. And that is only based on some um, loose associations through observation. Data, that women who are generally older, they have higher risks of things like hypertension, miscarriage, field demise, placental issues, etc. But it's just a loose association that is supposed to be generalizable to the entire population. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I know a lot of healthy 42-year-olds that I've helped with fertility concerns that are way better off than a 28-year-old who hasn't been taking care of themselves. Yeah. So it still comes back to the soil. Like, how? what's mm-hmm. your toxic load? How are you treating your temple? Is the sex you're having fun? Yeah, and a lot of 28 year olds are like, it's time to get pregnant, It's time to get pregnant. It's like, chill out and go and fuck the hell out of your partner and just connect yeah. on a different level. Or it's just contractual. Yeah, you know? it's so it's so um, it, it's so yeah, it's like it's like computational, like, oh, it's time to ovulate my fertile window and this and that like that can help. Mm-hmm. But if you've tried all of that, and you're still struggling, that's when the conscious conception piece comes in, you have to have fun when you're making a baby. Now, yeah. that's not to say that every person out there who's gotten pregnant was having fun. So I don't want to help <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether it's through rape or just like, I just don't like my partner, but oh my God, we had another baby. Like, I get that. And that does yeah. happen in some ways. But that again, there's some soul contractual work there that I don't that know.
0: Child, um, child has a reason for why, um, just like, there's reasons why they don't choose to come at certain times there are reasons why they chose to came at that come at that certain time to those certain parents like that's what i explain to my kids all the time that um i'll tell you a kind of a funny story i'll make it quick but i tell my kids all the time that they chose us as their parents and that they are curse breakers and so um i explain all this to them but one time my son goes well i guess kyle and tasha weren't available (laughs)
1: oh my god that's amazing yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) he like accidentally said it out loud maybe you know he's a kid but i was like yeah i guess not (laughs) i know he loves me so much but he he's obsessed with kyle um kyle and tasha but i want to go into the um Conscious conception with you as well in a in a in a moment, but I really quick before we move off of um this topic, I'm also curious about your take on the statistics that 32% of women under the age of 50 have had partial or full hysterectomies. I know that my mom did. I know a lot of women in their 40s have. And it it makes me so sad because um I feel like there's part of it that takes us out of the rhythm of nature as well. So um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? Why is that happening?
1: Well, uh, yeah, we were chatting a little bit about this before, and uh, you're right. It is uh, so. There's two different statistics that need to be considered. One is how many of these are being done per year, and are we doing more or less per year? That actually is going down, and that's I can answer that separately. The total number of people who have a a hysterectomy by the age of roughly 70 is roughly one third of our entire female population. Now we have to consider. That younger, the younger, the 20 through 50-year-old crowd is going to have a lesser likelihood of fitting into that category Mm. than the 50 to 70-year-olds because when 50 to 70-year-olds were of reproductive age, it was much cooler to have a hysterectomy. So we have to consider those two points. But the bottom line is that let's say that even 25% of women had a hysterectomy. We are removing their womb from the body.
2: yeah,
1: and I'll tell you. So a lot of people would say like, you don't have to have bleeds now. It's the same conversation on birth control. Like oh, you don't need that. And my bleed is
0: so sacred.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I'll I mean, say I mean,
0: before I experienced the womb healing for my sexual trauma, I didn't have that relationship with my bleed. Um, yeah. Now it's, it's such a, I look forward to it every month.
1: Yeah. Well, you the conversation around hormonal contraception fits into that nicely, where we we don't feel like there's any reason to have it. It's just inconvenient, and that's how we we've been advertising it to young girls for 50 years now. Um, that hey, you don't need that; can inconvenient bleed. But if it's only just an inconvenient bleed, but not rather not not even just a vital sign, but what if this is an important part of your womanhood? Mm-hmm. Then the conversation gets a little hairier, and because we haven't been asking that question, we've just been lying on this, this, this advertised inconvenience that we can take away with a pill or with a surgery or whatever. We haven't explored those other things, unless you know. If there's more. You know, there's more conversations like what we're having right now, which I think is really helpful, because women are. They do feel many of them that like something's missing now,
0: well, and yes, of rhythm with nature. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So um we can shut the ovaries down with birth control right it's a similar impact to taking away their bleed or their ovarian function by removing ovaries or uterus or whatever else but for those who don't know a hysterectomy doesn't mean the ovaries it means removing the uterus and the cervix um uh, the cervix is a total hysterectomy if you leave yeah. the cervix it's called a partial or a subtotal hysterectomy
0: but why and- also but why though why is that happening like to so many women I feel yeah. Like thirty-two percent is a really high percentage. Is it also a money thing, or what? What's the deal?
1: Well, so, so the common reason a person would come and have a hysterectomy is there's something off with their periods, right? Uh, it's too heavy, it's too frequent. I'm becoming anemic, and they're like, we can try birth control, which again, it it shuts down the ovaries and has all these other downstream consequences. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't work, we can try other other procedures, but the gold standard for bleeding from your uterus is to remove the uterus altogether. And it is such an easy procedure. I mean, I can't even tell you how easy with what what used to be a very, very dangerous procedure. We use these like electric clamps that have a fusing, like a sort of like cautery uh, um, metal metal clamps. you you go down all the way down the sides of the uterus, snip it off. whether you keep the cervix or not is a different different question. You remove the tubes, you leave the ovaries, and you can be done in like 30 minutes. It is the fastest, easiest procedure. Mm -hmm. Now, if the uterus is larger and the bleeding is due to fibroids or due to whatever else, then it can be a little bit longer. But the bottom line being that instead of actually talking about what are some of the environmental factors that are causing these bleeds and what maybe upstream causes in the endocrine system could be responsible, we just say, hey, either take the pill or take the surgery. Which again are the two things that I became very disillusioned with when I was in training. So, for a woman out there with fibroids, you could try a whole variety of things. We can do all sorts of lifestyle things, including pelvic steaming, yoni steaming, um, and, uh, and a variety of other things before we get to surgery. But most women go to their OBGYN because that's the purported, that's where the safety, the smart people are. Mm-hmm. and they're just they're surgeons so they're yeah. like yeah hey, we could do the pill or we could do definitively through hysterectomy i can get you in next week yeah. um there might be a financial incentive there yeah i think i think people like being able to to puff their chest and say they're really really good at surgery yeah. um but it would take a lot longer and maybe a lot more patience, and you maybe wouldn't get as much money per hour if you worked on them through lifestyle change so
0: yeah um you brought up yoni steaming so can, do you recommend that regularly what um I'm I have lost
1: so that. much business by referring people to my my yoni steam specialist friend her name's is adrian irizari and she's so good at what she does that i i i say by them and they never come back because their their issue gets fixed so wow. it's pretty powerful medicine and adrian uh because we'll, we'll it's controversial
0: actually like some people think that you shouldn't do it because it can can um that i don't know
1: buy them like, up maybe yeah,
2: yeah yeah
1: i don't believe that uh i maybe. think we have to consider risks benefits to anything if you're mm-hmm. if you have a uh, let's say you have extraordinary cyclical pain. You've got endometriosis, which I believe is an autoimmune condition. My colleagues do not, but you can fix it with lifestyle change. So there's that. Um,
0: I uh, so. I read The Cure for All Diseases, and she believes that everyone that has endometriosis also has liver flukes, um, hmm, which is a parasite. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah. I myself did coffee enemas for a while to clear myself of liver flukes, and my endometriosis and my HPV went away. Well. Um, I'm not saying that HPV is related to the liver flukes, but yeah. the coffee enemas cleared it up. Yeah. Um, I also know that my painful, super heavy periods, I had womb issues from my sexual trauma. And once I uh, really healed that, I have not had a single painful period since. And yeah. it's been like eight eight years. Um, not a single painful period since, Not, or, sorry, it's about six years. And um, no heaviness. Uh it's been, so there's so much stored in the womb that I think affects yeah. our periods, but sorry, go ahead with the yummy steaming.
1: No, I, I want to talk to you more about, about that experience someday because, uh, yeah, it, you know, we have to consider it, the, the reason the liver fluke thing is is interesting is that if we consider how much, um, how many factors play into how our immune system works, mm-hmm. Right. We've got tons of vaccines. Most of us are being born by C-section. Most of us are not breastfeeding, at least in our generation. Now it's coming, it's all coming back. But uh, we've been hit with rounds of antibiotics. Uh, Like I mentioned, tons of vaccines, not to mention a crappy food system that doesn't support our gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. We disrupt the microbiome. We disrupt the immune system. And now... Our body's being exposed to all sorts of proteins that are seen as invaders and it confuses it for our healthy tissues. Yeah. So the fluke in the liver is interesting. And uh, and perhaps even the role of other helmets and tapeworms and things like that, mm-hmm. where your body gets very, very clear on what's friend and what's foe.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the liver fluke thing may be one of those things where it actually works, you know, counter you know, sort of paradoxically, but I digress. When we consider (laughs) the role of the immune system and how it interacts with the endocrine system and the reproductive organs, we can start really working some magic. And the reason that pelvic steaming works for everything from endometriosis to early cervical cancer to early endometrial cancer to PCOS to recurrent vaginal infections to pelvic floor dysfunction, it works on a whole variety of things. Ovarian dysfunction, tubal uh, disease is is pretty remarkable it works by increasing blood flow we think to the pelvis but then also if you go to somebody like my friend adrian she concocts an herbs through the lens of chinese medicine and see so the medicinal properties of the herbs in the steam as it floats up into the yoni into the cervix through the uterus into the tubes out into the peritoneal cavity improves blood flow provides some medicinal properties and it's it is. I'm not going to say it's a cure all for everything, but yeah. I am finding some incredible results with it. Fibroids, polyps in the uterus. I mean, yeah. so many things.
0: I didn't so- know that it helps with PCOS, but my women's group, there's just four of us. We're about to become five. Um, we we have it on the schedule to do like yoni seams together. So I'm so yeah, excited, I that's and I'll, awesome. I'll report back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, um, I've got. will I'll link you up with my friend Adrienne too, because she's um she could she could get you hooked up so
0: so um really quick i want to touch on the side effects of birth control because i know a lot of what we talked about is also birth control related Um, and and you know there's the talk of menstrual suppression there's the talk of um i know for me i i got given birth control i think at like 14 for acne um and it gave me such bad anxiety. And then when I went back saying I couldn't breathe, she wanted to give me Xanax at 15 years old. Yeah. And I remember sitting on the stairs and thinking so many of my family members are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety and I've watched what it's done to them. They've become more robotic, um, less, uh, less them really. Yeah. And, uh, cause it's, it turns off, not just the anxiety, it turns off so many other things. And I remember thinking like, is this something I, just asking myself a bunch of questions, sitting on these stairs. And then I threw away the prescription, thank goodness. And then I stopped taking the birth control as well, just because I felt like uh, at the time it felt like I was gaining weight on it. But um, yeah, I mean, I was just given it for acne, had no idea all the, all the issues. Uh, My boyfriend, a boyfriend talked me into doing it when I was like 21, I took it for like a year. And then when I shot with Playboy, um, they wanted my breast to be perkier. So they told me to take birth control because it would make my breast perkier. It did. Yeah. So three different times that I took birth control for about a year. I don't know. Uh, I don't know really what side effects I have from it that are long-term, but yeah, I took it three different times for acne. My boyfriend just wanted to, you know, not have responsibility (laughs) in the bedroom. And then, uh, Playboy wanted my breasts perkier. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a lot of women don't don't realize that, you know, the side effects that can come with that. And um, I know we don't have that much time. So and I have like two more things I want to talk to you about. So I don't want to take too much time on it. But anything you want to say about about that topic?
1: Yeah. um Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> i didn't uh i didn't realize that playboy would have that gall to tell a woman like it wasn't
0: to- so i will say it was the photographer at playboy because okay. i don't want playboy <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I don't nervous, photographer.
1: <laughs> like, it wasn't in
0: our contract <laughs>
1: yeah yeah right right well um <laughs> So okay, so I, I I my mind's going all sorts of different ways. Like I, like, I think just I'm just trying to put myself in the mind of the photographer. You know, you should be on a synthetic endocrine disruptor. It would really like make you look good in this magazine. And of course, yeah. it's Playboy. You want to look great in Playboy. But anyways, I digress. I'm just it, that's actually a part of the conversation is that we yeah. have put young women on these pills. And uh, let's do give a scenario instead of the 15 year old whose whose endocrine system's still trying to work itself out through the brain thyroid, adrenals, ovaries. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the 20 something year old who's had normal periods and then something something suddenly goes off and now they're too heavy. They're not coming frequently enough, whatever. Hey, take this pill. You don't have to have that monthly bleed. That, that, mm-hmm. that pesky bastard, you know, like just, just take this pill. It shut down your ovaries and you won't ovulate. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to come off of it and get pregnant someday. So they come off of it five years later. Nobody ever investigated why they were having the dysfunction in the first place. They just put a Band-Aid on it. And now they're stuck where they were five, 10 years ago when they started the birth control and now they're having issues with pregnancy or their issues worse than it ever was before.
0: Yeah. And there's so many women now in their thirties who have autoimmune disorders right, that
1: we've
0: right, been taking right. birth control for so long.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing we never investigated why your periods were dysfunctional. We just gave you a pill and that mm-hmm. pill is, it's a, but billions of dollars worth of, of pills that we're giving out and other hormonal contraception, which includes the thing under the skin, the implant shot mm-hmm. in the arm, which is called Depo-Provera. We've got IUDs. We've got all sorts of things. The issue with the... And I'll try to make this as brief as possible. Based on what I said about the gut, it's going to disrupt the microbiome,
2: mm-hmm. taking
1: the birth control pill especially. That leads to nutrient deficiencies because when your gut microbiome is out of whack, you end up nutrient deplete because you don't have the right you know you're not feeding your body food you're feeding the bacteria in your Mm -hmm. gut and the viruses and protozoa and everything else it breaks it down and nutrients can get into the blood but if that's out of whack you're now in a state of nutrient depletion especially the fat soluble vitamins and iron and all these trace minerals that are important Mm -hmm. for sperm health for ovarian health for your for all of your tissues to be working you end up in a toxic load you know because you're you're probably still not eating right because nobody ever investigated this Mm -hmm. and um and then, of course, we mentioned the immune system gets disrupted. So now you have an autoimmune processes to start to, to, to develop. And uh, birth control pills also tell the liver to to up to to start producing more binding globulins in the blood, which binds up active hormone, giving the impression that you actually have low thyroid hormone and you have low adrenal hormones, and all these other hormones go out of whack. So basically, we are we are intentionally disrupting the endocrine system. Yeah. And at the cost of your nutrient levels, at the cost of your overall well-being, at the cost of your the endocrine system at large. And you've got most of your serotonin receptors in your intestinal tract. It's not in the brain. It's outside of the central nervous system. And we are putting medicines in the gut to effectively disrupt the gut, to, mm-hmm. to disrupt ovarian function, etc., And that is impacting Moods. That's why when women come off of the, you know, birth control, they feel like a veil's been lifted. So the Mm -hmm. depression, the anxiety, the libido, everything starts coming back. Yeah, but nobody's and nobody's talking about that. They're just like take this pill and you don't have to have a period. It affects
0: their mood so much that it also affects who they're attracted to. I know that like they did that test because we're attracted to people based off of also pheromones and scent, and because this changes us so much. Which, like, I think it was Sex at Dawn talks about this as well. When women get off birth control they actually don't like their partner anymore because they chose them based off of the way that the birth control made them That's right. um, draw, you know, mate, but that, and then also women are dying. As we saw in that film, Uh, women are dying because of birth control. And I think that a big part of the solution is not only teaching the, our women teaching our girls how to be empowered through tracking their cycles. um, And, but also teaching our boys, teaching our men, um, I think that's a big part of the solution.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I, uh, I, I, would, uh, so, so to, to, to piggyback on what you said about the the deaths, you know, we, we the estrogen, so these are synthetic hormones. We're putting estrogen and progestin with their synthetic. They're not the real hormones. Mm-hmm. So when you bleed on a pill, you're not having a period We're you're we're having a withdrawal to withdraw from progesterone. Exactly. During the, the placebo week. So, um, the synthetic nature of these hormones does the things to the liver and all the other uh, all the other things. It also increases the likelihood that you're going to form clots. The risk of you dying from a blood clot from birth control is still low, but it's not negligible. And mm-hmm. if it was my daughter who died, I would think that that's the perhaps the most catastrophic, irresponsible thing on, yeah. the, part of the, on the part of the pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. We as doctors are supposed to give you all the information you need to make an informed decision, and that's not what we're doing. Even mm-hmm. if it is a low risk, what is the risk stock? like? Should we? Shouldn't we be emphasizing that that there is this risk, and that you're the one in charge. You pick what you want, and I will support you. Yeah. But we shouldn't be overemphasizing the benefits and failing right. and neglecting the downsides. That's it's not such a
0: huge pamphlet of risks. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Those pamphlets are like we saw it in the movie. They're like. Yeah
0: ridiculous like
1: eight by eight feet long you know wide and it's like what on earth what is this and the print is like so miniature nobody's going to read that so when the FDA yeah. says yeah we warned you with the label like no you really didn't like this is no it needs to be Travis. like on the
0: cigarette carton yeah yeah um okay so I'm going to try to fly through these um sure. not I'm going to I'm going to omit a, a bunch but um we brought up conscious conception um I know that I have a shaman friend who him and his wife. They, I think they may have been on medicine, but they saw a bunch of like light orbs show up when they wanted to call in a soul. And they said, hey, we're shamans. We practice medicine often. Uh, We need you to be okay with that. We need you to be on this path with us. And like a ton of light orbs left. And then they said a couple more things. And then it came down to like seven, said a couple more things and it came down to one. And so then they called in that soul. And uh, it's really cute. Uh, I won't say the name of the daughter because it might you know be a part of their privacy but like the daughter even said what she wanted her name to be and they didn't go with that name they went with something else and for weeks after she was born she kept giving her dream saying i said my name was this i said my name was this so they went ahead and switched her name to what you asked for it's crazy but yeah so i don't know if that's um, your idea of conscious conception or if you have something else but i'd love to hear um I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, mm-hmm. I know we don't have time to talk about sacred death, but if there's time, I'd like to just talk about that. And then also mm-hmm. um, if we can wrap up with talking about how to improve the exam experience and find an OBGYN like you, <laughs> the exam experience, to me, it's um, a bit traumatizing in itself, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, if if I wanted to give you those two things um, so that you know uh, yeah. how to speak. Uh, well
1: the conscious conception piece we won't we won't really be able to get into most of that because that's a really important topic okay that is more than just call con- i mean we we will get into it but mm-hmm. it, that's like a whole hour in and of itself because oh. it's poorly understood and it's a very very personalized experience but yeah. the bottom line with when we conceive is that we have to imagine and i i don't know how to demonstrate this for people other than i've i've been there and i know this
2: mm-hmm.
1: through medicine and, and everything else but mm-hmm. the spirit of your baby is waiting for the right time to come into the womb mm-hmm. it may not necessarily be the time that you're hoping for mm-hmm. <laughs> you might want it now and the baby might say we got to wait till later you might not want it now and the baby's like i'm coming yeah and
2: that's
1: just how it goes so i got
2: shit to do
1: i got shit to do i got to grow up and be your kid <laughs> <laughs> so if we can take ourselves out of the re- reductive you know um, nature of the way that we experience the world through the lens of the media and their medical system and their political system, et cetera, they would have you believe that this is just a physical thing, sperm meet the egg, and then a baby grows out of that. And there's, and then and then that baby grows up and then eventually dies. Like that, that's obviously not as complicated as I have experienced it to be because mm-hmm. I sit with birth and death. And there's there's some incredible transformations that occur during those two periods. And I think conception is actually where this begins, this transformation of spirit. So in order for a woman, perhaps, to invite the soul of this baby in, we need to be asking, what does my partner need? What do I need? And what does this baby need mm-hmm. for this to happen? Sex can become an invitation. You know, your baby doesn't want to necessarily come in. Uh, it may not feel invited if the sex feels routine and mechanical. Mm-hmm. and, this and that. So instead of just tracking the cycle, we're also going to say, hey, like you guys are going to be playing in ways that maybe is a little more exciting for you than, than, but you haven't been, haven't felt comfortable expressing that, you know, I want to, I want to whatever 69, I want to have two people in the room. I want to have somebody Mm -hmm. watching. I mean, whatever it is that your kink is like, maybe that's actually a part of re-inspiring and reigniting this sort of uh embodiment of your of I got your
0: pregnant the night I got flogged.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Like it was that night at Burning Man at Spankies <laughs> when I leaned over a box and a woman that looked like Jade Bryce actually came up and whipped the shit out of me. <laughs> and then my wife and I had the greatest sex ever and she also whipped my wife. I mean like it's it's that like that is actually a part of conscious conception is that sex is supposed to be fun. Intimacy is, intimacy is way more than just penis and vagina it's connection
0: and it's supposed to be loud and messy and yeah. i think that we've gotten so fun.
1: far yeah yeah and and i mean of course i'm joking about the spanky story <laughs> although maybe <laughs> it we're that year maybe we did conceive our baby that year i don't know but <laughs> but i mean i say it i'm even laughing when i'm saying it because it sounds so crazy but this is actually how babies are made it's yeah. not just penis and vagina, sperm meets egg, lays in the uterus, and then you wait nine months and a baby comes out in the hospital under all these medications and distractions. Like that's the story we've been told, but that's mm-hmm. not where it begins. It begins with, who am I? Where am I going? Am I ready for this this archetypical transition from maiden to motherhood? A lot of people are putting their heels in because it is so scary. It's so confronting. Your body's going to change. Your boobs won't be as perky as before. You might have a little belly pooch now. Oh, yeah. Um. You know, and you're you're not gonna be traveling the world, you know, on molly and laced out on alcohol all the time. Like it's it's it life changes, but that's also an important recognition and acknowledgement as a partnership and an initiation together. It's an initiation, exactly. So with I mean, I I said a lot there, but I that's kind of the elevator speech as to what conceptions feels like. And I love it. Yeah. So I've I've also met the I met the soul of our baby twice.
0: Yeah. While she was in my wife, while I was on medicine, oh, wow. and I met Wolfie while she was in uh, Tasha's womb. You did as oh, well, yeah. Wolfie. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Oh, Wolfie's powerful. I, she's shown <laughs> up in quite a few of my ceremonies. I think we're going to have a, a really beautiful relationship um, when she's older, and when we already do. But okay, so how can we improve the exam experience? Because a lot of us dread them, myself included.
1: Oh, man. I don't know the, the answer to that one. So the experience most women have is you pull your pants down, you sit on crinkly paper, there's bright lights, kind of feels like you're a baby in a delivery room, honestly. Yeah, you're <laughs> you in know, this very... uncomfortable
0: position with this cold metal going yeah.
1: yeah, very uncomfortable uh, exam room. Um, I don't, you know, the the general GYN exam, I've gotten so far away from that because I don't like it. It's like go to the doctor that you feel safest with and most seen by. That's Have them do your PAP, and you don't need to go to an OBGYN for everything under the sun. And most of us do pelvic exams and all this, they're completely unnecessary. We do rectovaginal exams to check for endometriosis. It's completely unnecessary.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: there's poor consent in this and that. I think it starts with showing up in a way where, where you're actually just a person you know i we, we've like lost humanity in medicine and and i think people have gotten so caught up in their heads they've forgotten about their heart and if it was your partner on the table would you be telling him it's just a pinch or would you be using some extra lidocaine <laughs> jelly or warming up the speculum or maybe just introducing yourself and building rapport in the first visit the 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 industrial medical complex doesn't incentivize what I do, which is like 90 minutes of just getting to know you before I see any parts
2: at all. Yeah,
1: Because I want to know your story. What's important to you? What are your fears? What are your past mm-hmm. traumas? Mm-hmm. And and that comes through getting to know one another and trust building. So I think the first thing that we really should be incentivizing is spend as much time as you need in your first visit. Because if we're going to be sitting in stirrups in front of me, I want you to trust me. And if you don't trust me, then I will help you find a different doctor. And that's mm-hmm. okay. It's not my ego it's in the way my ego was blown apart years ago
0: we need more of you yeah more of you
1: i when i have like a brick and mortar clinic i imagine it will be very very busy and i i have to be cautious with that because what i do remotely like yeah we can look at your cervix and we can do all the exams that's fine but like what's most important to me is getting to know you and i can Mm -hmm. do that over zoom like that's what we do like we might spend 90 minutes talking about your childhood and and every seven years, what's happened to you from a trauma experience, from a mm-hmm. joyful experience, from a, a loss experience? And that's actually how we can start working on what's what's you know hurting you, what's what you're coming to me with with concerns about. Mm-hmm. But in the in the system, like you know, you got 20 minutes and, you, and, and when a- you go in
0: there and you ask them like can we put some can we warm this or can we like ease into this? They're not going to do like there's in my experience, they've been very cold and very like almost annoyed, you know, that you're there and yeah, we need more of you. And
1: Yeah. I remember, I remember there was a, you know, one of the common things that women go to their OBGYN for is, I'm pregnant, I want to check on the baby. Like they do an ultrasound to mm-hmm. check if the baby's, if there's a baby with a heartbeat. That's the first ultrasound most women get in pregnancy. It's not necessary, but a lot of people do it. Mm-hmm. And if you go in, you find yourself, um, you're super excited, or maybe you're not excited. The doctor never asks. Yeah. They're just like, hey girl, you got a pregnancy, so let's stick this wand in your vagina. And you've never really met this person, and they're not looking at you excuse me, they're not looking at you, they're looking at this computer screen, which Mm -hmm. is an ultrasound screen, and they're waving this wand like they're driving stick. Mm -hmm. They're just jerking it around. And I, of course, have never had that experience, but Mm -hmm. I've seen my wife have that experience. And I'm like, hell no, like I'm not doing that to people. So when you are going to do that exam, you could start by introducing yourself and asking themselves like, so where are you at? Like, how does this, what does this positive pregnancy test mean to you? Mm-hmm. build some trust, like get some basic social skills. Yeah. I as think as,
0: as a, as a client, I don't want to say patient, but like as a client, it's, it's um, I guess a lot of trial and error. Like it is finding a therapist, like really yeah, just trying people out. And it's hard because it's not a cheap, right. just like therapy, it's not cheap. Um, but if we can find that one good one, that's similar to, to the way you, approach things then at least we have that you know moving forward yeah, it is yeah. um it's it's really disheartening and i i really hope that things shift um yeah. but you give me so much hope so thank <laughs> you um okay so there's a lightning round that i end the show with the first question is if you could hug your younger self right now what would you say
1: <laughs> if i could hug my younger self i was i would say you're going to be good enough if you're going to be good enough because if i had told them you are good enough i wouldn't have believed it yeah you are going to be good enough and
0: that would have given them
1: years home. to develop
0: <laughs> if you could have the whole world read one book which would it be
1: it would probably be either there's three that i would give them the option of yeah ishmael by daniel quinn was the first game changer for me Okay. Charles Eisenstein's The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible" yes. and Grounded by Dr. Erin McMorrow. She's a PhD. Those three are actually the three that I send everybody. Here's your birthday gift. <laughs>
0: Charles Eisenstein is my, I just love him so much. Yeah. Um, okay. If you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet, what would it be?
1: Be kind. Yeah. Thank you. Be kind. It's not that hard, guys. We just have to take it's care of one much. another. It's Ram Dass says, we're all just walking one another home. I know. And uh, I am just a man who has two young, beautiful girls and a beautiful wife. And I pay my bills and I do my work. And I still have to come home and do the work. And it starts with being kind to the people around me. So.
0: Yeah. Mm, thank you. Okay, where can people find you online? Where can people, um, I know you do some virtual appointments as far as I know. So where can people yeah. find you on Instagram, find your podcast, book with you?
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Jade. I also want to honor you and your audience. Like The people that are listening to these interviews are the people that are going to change the world. It's really opening up the conversation and coming from the heart and not just from the brain. You know, we're all smart. Everybody has the uh, mental capacity. But if you're coming to these conversations with an open heart, that's really how we start to shift the the paradigm and shift our our collective consciousness around some of these things. So thank you for having me. And. For anybody out there listening, thanks for letting me banter on for a little bit with my friend Jade.
2: (laughs) Um,
1: If you want to work with me, I do take one-on-one clients. You can go to BelovedHolistics.com. I've got a little newsletter, just like everybody else. I've also got a shop link there with all of the products that I recommend to my clients in order to keep them as low-tox as possible and um, as all-natural as I can. Um, I don't do a lot of medications and surgery and imaging, but I do order those things and work those up for some people if I think it's absolutely necessary and we can't get it fixed through natural means. And then for any health coaches out there, Ayurvedic practitioners, Chinese medicine docs, I have a collaborator program. A lot of midwives join the program because they want an MD consultant that isn't like the doctors in the hospital system. Yeah. So they can, they can, they have me on speed dial and they call me anytime they need me for anything Amazing. Um, on behalf of their clients, often just to be able to counsel and educate appropriately. Yeah. And then um, I've got a podcast. It's called the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. And, um, and you're going to be coming on the show soon. Yeah. One other thing that I want people to know about is we have the, uh, a new website, IndieBirthInstitute.org where we are building a heart-centered uh, wise woman model Um, midwifery training program where we're also going to be able to offer women the opportunity to give birth um, in any way that they want.
2: Wow. Um, Whether
1: the baby's breech, whether they've got twins, whatever, we've got the team to put this together. And um, if you want to support that project, you can go to IndieBirthInstitute.org, which it's going to be really fucking cool. <laughs>
0: <It's> amazing. <laughs>
1: like Thanks the farm for 2.0. God. So thank yeah. you for
0: having me. I know I took up so much of your time and, and I'm just, I'm so thankful for your heart. You're so generous. Um, and honestly, uh, as a woman, you give me so, so much hope, not only for myself and mm-hmm. other women, but for my daughter and her future. So thank you for Thanks, answering the call.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you've got my phone number. You let me know how I can be helpful.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. <laughs> I know that was a lot, um, and I want to just also like acknowledge any men that listened through this entire episode because you are part of the answer. The fact that you sat through this um, for the women in your life it's it's so much a part of the solution so thank you and uh of course all the women man what we embody as women it is so powerful and i think that a lot of what we talked about is so disempowering and uh, i feel that we're really stepping back into into that power and into that sacredness of what it is to be a woman and I just I honor you also for sitting through this to to step back into that power and 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 to really own it. Um so thank you guys so much. I know it was a long episode. Uh I will thank the affiliates, the Dream Arc. Uh well, Gene Keys, Gene Keys with Richard Rudd. He has so many amazing programs. If you don't know your Gene Keys, um you can just look up Gene Key what are my Gene Keys and type it in and it it's To me, it's like um, human design in a much more helpful way for me, at least. Um, But check it out if it resonates with you. Uh, You can also take some of the courses about how to strengthen the areas of your life when it comes to prosperity or love or your dreams the link is in my uh, show notes. It's also in my bio. Uh, it has the animals. It's because uh, my link for it is called the Dream Arc, because that's the program I'm currently in. But when you click on that link, you can just scan through all the Gene Keys stuff. So that is Gene Keys, G E N E, GeneKeys.com forward slash the dash dream dash arc, A R C forward slash R E F forward slash one seven zero seven. I would love for you to join any of the programs and um, us chat about them. Uh, then the best toys for sex at dameproducts.com. code Jade gets you 15% off. My favorite is the suction toy that uh, I call the clit sucker. They call it the air AER highly recommend it so many orgasms with that thing i like to pair it with my pleasure wand or my yoni egg i have the jade egg and i have two pleasure wands i have the cervical wand for cervical orgasms and then i have um, my pleasure wand with the flower inside of it and i love to use those with my clit sucker and you can get any of these products as um at wands.com w-a-a-n-d-s.com code jade for a discount there. so, yeah, the wands and the yoni eggs at wands.com, clitsucker at dameproducts.com, code JADE at either website, all things CBD at direct code JADE for a discount there, higher dose infrared products. I am going to use their sauna blanket as soon as I get off here, code JADE75 for $75 off. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and being on this journey with me. It would mean it would mean so much, you guys, if you would leave a review. If everyone that listened to this episode left a review, it would do wonders for the podcast. And if you would share an episode with a friend, that would also do wonders. You can also join me on Instagram at Untamed and Unashamed Podcast. As always, be the light, stay open, and remember, you belong here.